Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Peter Spiegel. There's a new report from Malaysia, the most recent site of arrests for illegal smuggling of wildlife. The animals this time were live baby turtles, numbering 5,255 in total, found packed in two suitcases. These were a semi-aquatic species called red-eared sliders. Now, Malaysia is a major transit point for wildlife smugglers. And these turtles were intended to go to India, where they would be sold as pets. According to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, this species is the most popular one in the illegal pet trade. Some turtles are also used in traditional Chinese medicine or served as a delicacy in various parts of Asia. Now, the two smugglers, they face up to five years in prison, and they were reported to be Indian nationals who flew in from China. Now, besides the cruelty these little turtles face, do you think all of them survive the trip to get placed in loving homes with proper nutrition or living conditions? Of course not. These turtles have been shown to be populating natural environments where they have never been before and where they don't belong. They are invasive and they disrupt natural ecosystems. This occurs when they escape or get released into the wild. And also, these smugglers, they did not limit their activities to animals. Also found was more than 14 kilograms of meth. So that is just one recent story. Earlier this year at the international airport in the Philippines, more than 1,500 live baby turtles of various types were found in a piece of luggage that had been left behind by a passenger who probably became fearful that he or she would get caught. And many of these turtles were wrapped in duct tape to hinder their movement while confined. So you may be motivated to financially support one or more of the many groups working around the world to fight the trade. Now here, stateside, you don't want to buy a pet that may have been illegally sourced, so you don't contribute to the demand. Now talking about exotic pets more generally, like snakes, iguanas, big cats, and primates, for some reason or reasons, many people continue to be drawn to wanting to own one or more of these non-domesticated species. Dogs, cats, and rabbits don't satisfy the urge in some people, and often the outcomes are not good for the animals, almost always. A few years ago, Lori reflected on some of her personal experiences with two different bobcats who were kept as pets. Now, this is decades ago. I think you're going to enjoy listening to her story on the way things used to be. Here we go. Listen, most of my animals today, listeners, probably can guess that I strongly oppose the ownership of exotic animals as pets. But I will tell you, when I was younger, much younger, I should say, 15 years old, I did have a close and personal relationship with an exotic pet. It was a bobcat. And at the time, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever and saw absolutely nothing wrong, nothing wrong with the ownership of a wild animal as a pet. And so this is how this little story goes. I became very close to a couple who were friends of my parents, and this lovely couple who chose not to have any kids owned this bobcat. Buttercup was her name. Buttercup soon became this couple's child. I would often visit them at their home. We would all have dinner together. We would go on little walks together, the three of us, and Buttercup. And mind you, this was not their first bobcat. Before Buttercup was Roberta, whom I did not know. This was in 1962, just a few years before I was born, when they purchased a four-month 
old Roberta from a place in Los Angeles called Uncle Jim's Jungle for $350. And back then in 1962, there was uh, no restrictions in owning a bobcat in California. Roberta lived to a nice long age of 16 years. And when they lost Roberta, that's when they got Buttercup, which was in 1978. And the rules and regulations changed somewhat, which made it more difficult to own a bobcat, but my friends were uh, known by the Department of Fishing Game, and the authorities knew how well they treated their first bobcat, so the uh, restrictions were waived with them, and they were able to purchase their second bobcat, this three-week-old Buttercup, who also ended up living until 16 years of age. Now, at this point, the laws in California changed again, making it virtually impossible for an individual to obtain a bobcat. Of course, if you were, if you owned a zoo or a wild animal park, that was different, but individuals could not obtain one. And so my friends ended up getting two domesticated house cats. Now, in catching up with my dear friends last year, And them knowing I'm an advocate for the animals, I did ask him to reflect upon his 33 years of experience in owning two wild animals as a pet. And he reminded me that it was not easy. It was truly a -a 24-hour-a-day job. They were inspected two times per year by the L.A. Department of Animal Regulations and also by the Department of Fish and Game, making sure they complied with the double security doors and burglar alarms, excuse me, burglar bars on their windows and all the other regulations and rules that they had to follow. Now, he didn't want to get into a discussion of the ethics and moral issues that surround the ownership of an exotic pet. For instance, preventing a wild animal from being raised in his natural environment and socializing with his species of his own kind and being confined to an unnatural limited space and essentially being raised and living a domesticated life. Listen, it was a different time, and I think we are starting to think twice about these practices, so I really didn't want to press the issue with him. But he did recognize and admit to me that the wild instinct never goes away in a wild pet. So although tamed and raised from birth and defanged and declawed, which is another unethical topic we're going to address at another time, his point was, although tamed and loving to them, in an instant... The cat can bite or attack a child or a stranger with any sort of seemingly insignificant trigger like a smell or simple gesture or someone wearing a strange-looking hat. So at that time, and like I said, I was 15, 16 years old and, and spent quite a bit of time with Buttercup, I thought nothing about the ethical issues surrounding the ownership of a wild animal. In no way did it even cross my mind. In fact, I thought this was the luckiest and most spoiled feline I've ever met. And just as you and I might treat our cat or dog as part of the family, and as a child, so did they. This bobcat was their child. I'll tell you the difference is you and I would feed our cats a 99-cent can of Fancy Feast, and they would give their cat a $15 steak for dinner. But again, not once... At that time, did I ever think about if it were inhumane or unethical to keep a wild animal as a pet? Now, 30 years later, and as a radio talk show host advocating for the animals, I think often about this, especially when I read about or hear about over and over again people getting mauled by their exotic pets, whether a bobcat, a python, a chimpanzee, a bear, whatever, 
Wild animals should not be pets. We know better now. Reason one, as I alluded to before, holding a wild animal as a pet is cruel to the animal because it prevents him or her from doing what they're supposed to do in the wild. I don't think that people should have the legal ability to prevent a wild animal from leading a normal animal life. And, and especially the business of breeding and selling such animals like, say, a boa constrictor. I mean, what's the point of that? To amuse the owner? I really think we need to get away from this. Now, I'm a big proponent of animal sanctuaries. Sanctuaries provide a safe place for wild and sometimes not so wild animals to live out their lives after they become unmanageable by owners who didn't think ahead about the needs of a wild animal or how big a snake or an alligator or a bear will get. And yes, even a bobcat. Or when performing animals are no longer needed to perform. Or when wild animals are rescued after being injured such that they would not be able to live out their lives in the wild. Sanctuaries provide a place for them. And animal sanctuaries are a great place to bring children to learn about animals and how some people can actually be kind to animals and how to really show them compassion and respect. Children remember these lessons and carry them off into their relationships with other people as well. I mean, compare that to what I think they learned, say, at the circus, that being that it's okay and normal to control and abuse animals to make them do unnatural things and to cheer when they do their unnatural things or their tricks for us. To me, these are just not the right examples we want to set for our children. The circus, I'll repeat this again, is not the way we want to educate our children about these beautiful living creatures. And how about the fact that a wild animal living as a pet may just kill you or someone you love? Oh, that would never happen to me. Well, until the day it does. Remember last year in Oxford, Florida, a two-year-old girl, Shauna Hare, was strangled, asphyxiated by her mother's pet Burmese albino python. This snake, by the way, had escaped the enclosure before, and it was not registered with the state as required. So not only is the child dead, but her mother and boyfriend have been charged with third-degree murder, manslaughter, and child abuse, as they should be. A horror story all around. And just as an aside, the uh, Florida Everglades are being overrun with released Burmese pythons, which are set free when the owners get scared or realize they have made a big mistake. Pythons in the Everglades. Think about that. And don't think a big cat won't hurt you or kill you, too. Of course, they're cute when they're small. They can hurt you. From 1998 to 2003 in the United States, nine people were killed by privately held tigers. In Texas, for some reason, Texas more than other states, I'm not sure why, there are many tigers held as pets. And not long ago, a 10-year-old girl was killed by a tiger while she was helping her stepfather groom the animal. The tiger clamped her head in its jaws. And a three-year-old was killed by his grandfather's pet when the child was posing for a photograph inside the cage. My God, maybe you can't fix stupid, but we can and we should make it harder for these idiotic adults to endanger children. 
And even if someone doesn't die or the owner doesn't go to jail, be ready for a civil lawsuit if a snake or a bear or a tiger hurts someone. Animal tax cases are like red meat to lawyers, and they will even help fund the costs of the case if there's a homeowner's insurance policy in place. Did you know that? Remember uh, Carla Nash, who had her face torn off by Travis the chimp? Well, she sued her former friend for $50 million, and her lawyers are trying to obtain permission to sue the state of Connecticut for $150 million, alleging the state's actions and failures to act resulted in grievous injuries to Miss Nash. Look at all the trouble and misery that happens when you try to make a pet out of a wild animal. So please, please do not be tempted into getting a baby big cat or a python or a monkey. Visit an animal sanctuary instead and consider supporting them by volunteering or donating. And there you go. Thanks, Lori. More after this break. back to the show. There was a double-blind study published in the July edition of the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association using dogs and specifically beagles. These beagles went through eight weeks of training to detect cancer and specifically lung cancer. So the dogs were led into a room and there were blood serum samples at their nose level. And some samples came from patients with lung cancer and others were drawn from normal healthy controls. And the dogs would sniff a sample and they would then sit down to indicate a positive finding for cancer or they would move on if no cancer was detected. Anyway, the cancer-sniffing dogs were 97% accurate in identifying lung cancer. Apparently, the second phase of the study is to see if the dogs can detect certain kinds of cancer using samples of patients' breath collected by the patient breathing into a face mask. Anyway, the next step will then be to further fractionate the blood samples, let the dogs do their thing again, until the specific biomarkers for the cancer are identified. Researchers say the goal of the study is to develop an over-the-counter screening product or some device that someone can breathe into and see some sort of color change to indicate a positive or negative finding, like similar to a pregnancy test. According to one of the researchers, he states, right now it appears dogs have a better natural ability to screen for cancer than our most advanced technology. He goes on to say, once we figure out what they know and how, we may be able to catch up. So I'm not sure what that really means or if that's really true, but perhaps he means that maybe the very small hidden lung cancers that might be missed with advanced imaging like chest x-rays and CAT scans might very well be detected by these dogs. Anyway, it's interesting. It's fascinating. I love that story. But what I really want to know is whose dogs are these? Were they bred specifically for this purpose, Mm. to be lab dogs? You think they're owned by the researchers and spend most of the time in small kennels in a cold, sterile laboratory? And what will happen to the dogs after the work is complete? Okay, all good questions. And my question is the f- next generation of like home testing devices, you, you buy one of these devices, does it come with a little dog in the kit or, or they're going to replace the dog with something else? That's what I want to know. It's freeze dried. You pour, add some water, you get a dog. Or you go to a lab, you want to know if you have a certain kind of cancer yeah. and in front of you, you see 30 dogs right. lined up just and you up. just walk past right. the dog. I like that. Like Let that. them sniff you. That's good. Okay. 
Peter, here's another one. New research shows that dogs have evolved a new muscle around their eyes to better communicate with humans. Huh. Mm. So researchers compared the anatomy and behavior of both dogs and wolves and found that the muscle of the face are similar except above the eyes. So over thousands of years, dogs developed a small muscle that wolves do not have, which allows them to raise their inner eyebrows. The authors suggest that the inner eyebrow raising movement makes the dog's eyes appear larger, more infant-like, and also resemble a movement humans produce when they are sad, which triggers a nurturing response in humans and contributes to the human-dog bonding. That's really interesting. And, you know, as you're saying this, I'm playing around with my eyebrows almost unconsciously. I'm just, <laughs> like, moving my face around. It's strange to hear that story for the first time. Yeah, you were looking upset with me when I was... <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't upset with you. Okay. I was just imagining life as a dog. Well, I'll read a couple quotes. Evolutionary psychologist Dr. Julian Kaminsky, who led this research, she states... The evidence is compelling that dogs develop a muscle to raise the inner eyebrow after they were domesticated from wolves. We also studied dogs and wolves' behavior, and when exposed to a human for two minutes, dogs raised their inner eyebrows more at a higher intensity than wolves. The findings suggest that expressive eyebrows in dogs may be a result of humans' unconscious preferences that influence selection during domestication. When dogs make the movement, it seems to elicit a strong desire in humans to look after them. This would give dogs that move their eyebrows more a selection advantage over others and reinforce the puppy dog eyes trait for future generations. She says this muscle movement is significant in the human dog bond because it might elicit a caring response from humans, but also might create the illusion of human-like communication. Co-author of the paper, Professor Anne Burroughs, states, The raised inner eyebrow movement in dogs is driven by a muscle which doesn't consistently exist in their closest living relative, the wolf. This is a striking difference from species separated only 33,000 years ago and think that the remarkably fast facial muscular changes can be directly linked to dogs' enhanced social interaction with humans. So these researchers believe that this muscle that dogs have developed, which allows them a certain facial expression, may have helped define the relationship between early dogs and humans. That's very interesting. I wonder uh, what hormones might be involved in this too, like oxytocin. I wonder if that is uh, elevated when you when the brow goes up or something. Yeah, that's like that. a good thought. All right. Fascinating though. Peter, the next news item should infuriate any animal lover. Three psychopath hunters okay i should break this down into three infuriating parts of the story number one hunters that's infuriating in itself number two three individuals are illegal psychopath hunters because they illegally hunted and killed a male mountain lion in the northern section of yellowstone national park okay so they illegally crossed the mark boundary to hunt mountain lions number three they received no jail time. Their crime was discovered when they, like so many of these disturbed individuals do, posted disgusting pictures of them looking so proud and victorious alongside their kill yeah. on social media. So this majestic, beautiful animal was murdered for a photo opportunity. What was their sentence? Should have been jail time, but no. Just a little fine and three years of unsupervised probation. Whatever that means, unsupervised anything means nothing, right? You know, the hunters, they have this urge. It's almost irresistible to post their pictures with their 
pray like they were so brave and strong. I know. You know? They're disgusting. Yeah. I, I know. think I have that photo. I'll post it on the website. Yes, please do. Lori, we've spoken about this a few times, and that is adopting older dogs. We really advocate that. I think you've done a couple of interviews and segments over the years about how wonderful it is to adopt an older dog, a dog who needs medical care, has one eye, three legs, whatever. And we did it ourselves. We adopted Josie. We rescued and found Josie with two broken legs and a broken snout. and A mouthful of teeth that needed to be removed. Exactly. And she ended up being the sweetest Sweetest dog dog that we... I know, I know. She was a sweet dog. And she lived a wonderful, happy life for an additional, what, six years? Yeah. Yeah. She was a great one. Well, there's a group I don't believe we've spoken about before called Gray Muzzle Organization. They are a nonprofit. They've been around since 2008. And what they do is they raise money and then make grants to other nonprofits to support their programs to help people adopt older dogs, dogs that need hospice and just a place to live out the rest of their lives happily. I which love is really that. Sweet. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So they just announced they are going to make grants totaling $419,000 to 62 animal welfare groups across the nation. Isn't that great? And I'll just give you one example of an organization that focuses on older dogs. This one is called Muttville. There are larger organization. They are based in San Francisco, and uh, they're a very popular charity up there. Their mission is to give senior dogs a second chance at life. They rescue them, and they give them the care that they need, find them loving homes, and then spread the word about how wonderful they are. Isn't that great? Beautiful. Okay. So next time you want another family member or two, think about the older dogs. It's just such a wonderful thing. Okay, Lori Wright, you like? I like. Okay. Stick around more of the show after this break. I am very uh, happy to be speaking with our good friend Peter Wolf. He's with Best Friends Animal Society, and he is research policy analyst there. And uh, Peter contacted us uh, not too long ago, a few weeks ago, and uh, was really excited about this uh, new research that was just uh, published. And, of course, that got us excited also and wanted to share this with you. I want to read the title of the paper. It's called... Integrated return to field and targeted trap neuter vaccinate return programs result in reductions of feline intake and euthanasia at six municipal animal shelters. So there's a lot in there, and we are going to go through it. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for having me again. It's a pleasure. So, uh, what is the problem or issue that this sort of research addresses? So, Best Friends Animal Society has for several years now. We've, we've operated what we call our community cat programs, and these are shelter-based programs. We have uh, Our staff is actually embedded in these various municipal shelters across the country, specifically there to address the issue of community cats, meaning unowned free-roaming cats, which historically, when these cats come into a shelter, there's not, not a great chance of them being adopted, and so very often they are killed in, in these shelters, especially large shelters, and especially um, times of the year when the shelters are, are really bursting at the seams with, with kittens. And so, again, these programs are meant to address uh, specifically that issue and uh, 
saved the lives of, of these cats who, again, historically would have had a very low chance of making out shelter alive. And the way we've, we've gone about this is, and this is sort of at the, the core of what's described in this paper, it's what we call this integrated approach. And so there's, there's sort of two pieces to it. There's what, what's sometimes called shelter-neuter-return shelter, or return-to-field, and that is essentially shelter-based TNR. So a cat comes into the shelter either by an animal control officer or by a resident, and uh, assuming that cat qualifies for the program, meaning the cat is healthy, does not have a, a traceable microchip, for example, mm-hmm. that cat is sterilized, vaccinated, and returned to the location where the cat was, uh, was captured. That's the return to field piece. The other piece is what, again, most of us are familiar with as traditional trap-neuter return. This is uh, residents or, uh, say, a TNR group uh, bringing the cats into a low-cost clinic, again, for sterilization, vaccinated, vaccination, and then they're returned. What we do is we integrate those two components so that when the cat comes in over the counter to the shelter, not only is that cat sterilized, vaccinated, and returned, we go, literally, our staff goes knocking on doors, asking around to find out where are there more cats who need to be sterilized and vaccinated in this area, who very likely at some point in time would have come into the shelter. So there's a preemptive component to to this. And again, that's what's described in the paper is this, the, the value of integrating these two pieces of TNR. Who is the author of this paper? Is he a best friend's person? Dan Spihar is the, the lead author. He's an independent research uh, researcher based in the Cleveland, Ohio area. And uh, as I like to tell everybody, there's a reason Dan is listed as the lead author. And it's not just alphabetically. He is, Dan has done the heavy lifting on this article as well as some others that we've published together and continues to, to work in, in this capacity. Um, his efforts are, I mean, I tell him and others all the time, were this left solely up to me, uh, I don't know that any of these articles would see the light of day. So this particular paper, uh, what does it describe? What's the method used? And then please go on to the findings. Yes. In, in, in this paper, what we've described is the results of six of Best Friends' first community cat programs. Uh, these are ongoing throughout the country. Indeed, as, as you and some of your listeners know, we, we have one currently underway in Coachella Valley, not, not far from you at all. Um, but this paper, we summarized the first six. And these are, as I say, embedded programs, three years, and large scale. We're talking anywhere from 2,500 to 5,000 cats sterilized annually over each of the three years across six CCPs for a total of nearly 73,000 cats involved. So this is, to our knowledge, is the first study of its kind on this scale. The the key findings uh, from this study, and again, our focus as, as, you know, best friends, it is our mission to to eliminate the needless killing of dogs and cats in, in U.S. shelters. So our focus was very much on how have we been able to reduce shelter killing by way of these problems? And what we've seen, uh, again, across these, these six CCPs, each of which is three years, is a median reduction of about 32% in overall feline intake and a median decline of about 83% in 
the killing of cats and kill, uh, kittens entering these large municipal shelters. Enormous improvements. Uh, and, and in fact, these improvements happen uh, surprisingly quickly, even for those of us involved. I mean, we've seen that four of these six shelters uh, saw reductions of 50% or more uh, in, in shelter killing after just the first year of this programming. Uh, which gives, I think, great hope to those shelters who are struggling. And many, many shelters around the country are struggling with uh, the what do we do about the community cats. And again, the one one of the key reasons for uh, for documenting these results in this this published paper is to encourage other shelters to to go down the same path. And the the other key finding that I I really want to emphasize only for the six shelters. Uh, were have the kind of data, the granular level of data that allows uh, allows us to look at newborn kitten intake. But of those four, and again, we're talking large, large numbers across these four shelters, 40% reduction in kitten intake. And of course, you know, the two reasons that's really important, uh, neonatal kittens are really, really very at risk when they enter a shelter. They require a great deal of care. Many shelters don't have the bandwidth. So there's the, the immediate life-saving component there, but also as, as an indicator of the effectiveness of sterilization when done in this targeted fashion to actually reduce the breeding at a community level. That, of course, is, is terribly important, especially for the sustainability of these sorts of programs. Peter, this integrated program model, it sounds... Uh very expensive and very labor-intensive. Would you comment on that? Sure. In terms of the expense, we've we've yet to see, and I, I you know, I would love to see it. Um, I just uh, we haven't seen it yet. A rigorous economic analysis done of not just an integrated program like this, but just in general how shelters are are handling community cats. Again, we'd definitely love to see that sort of work. Um, in terms of the effort, it absolutely uh, requires an effort. As I mentioned, you've got staff out there literally, you know, knocking on doors. Uh, granted, they're out there returning the cats anyhow, but still absolutely resource intensive. On the other hand, what we see where these programs really take off and really do very well, that once the shelter staff and the field enforcement staff see the life-saving potential of these programs, they jump in. They jump in with both feet, and you get, for example, animal control officers wanting to do the returns, wanting to go knock on those doors, talk to residents about where are the rest of the cats, who's feeding cats in this neighborhood, do they know about these programs and the resources available. So, yes, resource-intensive. On the other hand, uh, again, you get that, you know, many hands make, make a light load, and when folks see the life-saving uh, opportunities here, they do tend to, to jump in with both feet. But it's also important to keep in mind, when you don't have these sorts of programs, that's really intensive, too, in terms of for, for the, the shelter staff. Uh, in you know, if not all communities, there are laws regarding how long, quote-unquote, stray animals need to be kept. That's typically 72 hours. That's not free, and it's typically uh, that, that bill is being footed by taxpayers. So having a conveyor belt of cats and kittens coming into the shelter with no end in sight is very, very expensive for taxpayers. And there are some studies that have looked at that and found that PNR is a more economical approach than the traditional method. And, and there's, there's 
less quantifiable cost, perhaps, but there's some, been some really interesting work lately, some research into what is the toll on the mental health of shelter staff who have to deal with those circumstances of the the uh, killing of healthy animals coming in the front door. And again, if, if you've got that conveyor belt with no end in sight, it takes an enormous toll. And of course, you can add to that the, the shelter staff turnover that comes with it. That does have a clear economical component. So it's, it's complicated, certainly, but we think when an economic, a rigorous uh, economic analysis of a program like this is done, that actually it, it works out very much in favor of the cats, the shelter staff, the taxpayer. So, Peter, what will we see next? Where does this sort of uh, research go? Future research, as I say, we're we're working with other um, other communities now, including there in Coachella Valley uh, Bayou, uh, with uh, community cat programs right now that that uh, follow this this integrated um, component. We're also uh, we're um, having a whole day actually ahead of the Best Friends Conference in Dallas in July to talk about community cat issues. And of course, this will be sort of a, a, this work is sort of a centerpiece of those discussions, demonstrating to other communities, here's what you can expect if you implement this kind of integrated uh, program. And of course, we're uh, continuing to to monitor um, and track the data with our other programs so that we can, again, continue to, to publish this sort of research. And then most recently, and I, I say most recently, it hasn't actually happened yet, but it is, is in the planning stages right now, our next community cap program, uh, we're looking at integrating to that. Again, it'll be the same sort of formula, the integrated return field, CNR pieces, uh, but also layering on top of that a census of the community where we actually go around and count the number of cats in particular neighborhoods and then do that on an ongoing basis so that we're able to demonstrate over time not just the shelter metrics, the reduced intake, the reduced uh, shelter killing, but also at a community level, if we're doing this right, we should be seeing fewer cats. More of the cats we see in the communities will be ear-tipped than at the beginning of the program. So that that's a really exciting research component. Again, it's only in the planning stages right now, um, but really, really looking forward to that. Peter Wolf with Best Friends Animal Society. Thank you so much for sharing this important news with us. Oh, thanks again. Glad to join you anytime. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals, now in our 11th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. 
This Animals Today Minute is brought to you by the nonprofit animal welfare organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. With Independence Day just around the corner, today's Animals Today Minute is about 4th of July pet safety. Did you know that more pets go missing on July 4th than any other day of the year? And July 5th is the busiest day of the year for many of the animal shelters in the U.S. due to the influx of lost animals who have run away from home in fear due to the fireworks. That's a big reason to think about how to keep your pets safe and secure during the upcoming holiday. The 4th of July can be packed with fun for people, cookouts, warm weather, pool parties, friends, and fireworks. But it can be a very stressful and anxious time for your dogs and cats. As with any holiday for most pets, they are happiest when they can stick to the routine as much as possible. If you live near a location where fireworks displays take place, or if your neighbors like to shoot off fireworks themselves, the loud noises and the bright lights can really spook your animals. Just being there with your animals can be very comforting to them. But if you need to leave your home or apartment, maybe you're going to a party or you want to check out a fireworks display, then most experts suggest letting them hang out in a secure and quiet room in your home, like a bedroom or a bathroom furthest away from the commotion outside. Of course, provide plenty of water in their favorite blankets, and for cats, their kitty litter. If your pets get very anxious, speak to your vet or a behaviorist ahead of time to talk about your options, which may include medication or CBD. For some animals, the security of being in a crate, maybe even partially covered, is helpful, and sounds from a television or a radio may mask some of the noise outside. Look into those compression garments for your dogs, too, which are supposed to be soothing, but you might want to give them a try ahead of time to see if your dog will wear it. Now, of course, you don't want to take your animals to fireworks displays. It's just too frightening, and dogs may just get so freaked out that they try to escape and run away. So please don't bring them along. And it should go without saying, never leave your dogs unattended in your backyard when fireworks might be set off. Their fear might cause them to escape in ways they have never managed before. If you entertain and have guests over around the 4th of July, other issues arise that you want to anticipate. First, if your dogs like being out amongst your guests and you want them there, guard against them getting a hold of things they should not eat or drink. Grapes, raisins, chocolate, and alcohol are common hazards that can cause serious illness in dogs. And don't let your dogs sneak any uncooked meat on the way to the grill, as the bacteria in it can sicken them as well. Ask your guests not to feed your pets food scraps. You want to keep their diets routine to avoid gastrointestinal distress. Make sure, and this is key, make sure your guests don't let your pets sneak out a door and get out where they can quickly get lost. Now, if you want to or need to travel with your pets, we all love taking our pets along on our adventures, right? Well, all the usual precautions apply and you want to plan appropriately. Their food, medicines, crates, whatever your pets need to travel happily and safely. And around the 4th, be extra mindful of the anxiety and fearfulness that fireworks can induce in your pets, especially when away from familiar surroundings. And, of course, it's a good time to make sure your pet's ID tags are being worn and show your current contact information. And their chips have your current information as well. Hopefully, no one listening needs reminding about getting their pets microchipped, right? Okay, so my bottom line, enjoy the holidays, but keep your pets safe and secure in your home. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today.
Recently, environmental and animal welfare groups have begun asking people to stop using plastic straws because many of them end up in the oceans where they harm aquatic animals. Each year, an estimated 4.8 to 12.7 million metric tons of plastic waste enters the oceans. But why the recent interest in drinking straws, which are a relatively small part of the plastic waste? Well, a video showing the removal of a straw embedded in the nasal passage of a rescued sea turtle definitely raised awareness about the direct effects of plastic waste on aquatic animals. This has been viewed more than 17 million times on YouTube, and a follow-up video showing the removal of a plastic fork from a leatherback turtle's nose has almost 6 million views. Overall, the main types of marine debris are plastics, lost and discarded fishing gear like lines and ghost nets, food packaging, metal objects, medical waste, and cigarette filters. 20% of the total is from fishing gear lost at sea or by illegal dumping. Along coastal regions, small pieces of discarded trash wash into storm drains, which lead to the oceans. Beachgoers and picnickers who litter contribute to ocean pollution and poorly managed municipal dumps and factories are also culprits. Trash that finds its way into rivers and streams likewise can end up as ocean debris. Finally, there is the impact of weather events like hurricanes, which can blow huge amounts of garbage into waterways and oceans. Marine animals are harmed by ingestion and by entanglement. Discarded nets and traps can continue to kill marine life by suffocation and starvation long after they are lost. Waterfowl, fish, and sea mammals ingest plastics of all varieties, filling their stomachs with trash and robbing them of vital calories. Now, back to the burden of straws. A statistic you may read is that each day in the U.S., people discard 500 million straws, or 180 billion per year. Now, even though this figure has been questioned as coming from a single possibly biased source, one thing is certain. At beach cleanups, plastic straws are among the top 10 items removed. So it sure seems reasonable to be concerned about plastic straws as oceanic waste. So, whether to ditch plastic straws will be a decision for each of us to make. That is, unless you are in the coastal cities of Manhattan Beach or San Luis Obispo, California, where disposable plastics, such as food containers and straws, are prohibited. And recently, a bill introduced in California would assess hefty fines and even jail time to restaurant wait staff who supply plastic straws to customers without specifically being asked. Let's see where this goes, but here in California, anything's possible. Some restaurants have already stopped offering straws anyway, or are using compostable ones. And of course, there are voluntary steps each of us can take to reduce our plastic footprint, like reducing the use of other single-use plastics like bags, cups, and water bottles. There are so many durable, practical, and stylish alternatives now available, and there are even stainless steel straws. So, help save the oceans and their creatures and make single-use convenience plastics a thing of the past. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.
We have been, well, our dogs have been using the Hero Bowl. This is from Hound, H-O-W-N-D. It is the most hygienic and germ-busting dog food and water bowl in the world, and we love it. It features built-in silver ion technology that provides the bowl with the feature of being antimicrobial 24 hours a day, and that keeps the bowl from getting contaminated with MRSA, E. coli, other bacteria, and mold and fungi. It's made from recyclable polypropylene and has a non-slip base, ergonomic design, and thank you, dishwasher safe. That is the Hero Bowl from Hound.